Hello to everyone joining us online and here in the room for today's hybrid event, Public Health and Disease Prevention, What Benefits for an Adult Immunization Policy in Europe? My name is Dave Keating. I'm coming at you live from the Euractive Studios in the heart of the EU quarter. And today we're going to be discussing a topic that really touches each of us individually. We know that when it comes to public health, prevention is key. It's always better and cheaper to stop a disease from developing than to treat a disease. Nowhere is this more clear than with immunization. And we all got a very clear illustration of that during the COVID-19 pandemic. On one hand, the pandemic demonstrated the devastating impact of infectious diseases on adult health, quality of life, mortality, and resilience. And importantly, it also demonstrated the importance for the functioning of our healthcare systems and the global economy. On the other hand, the successful vaccination strategy as the way out of the pandemic showed the power of adult immunization. Over the past decades, vaccination strategies have largely been targeted at children. Not only is it logically better to get people vaccinated as early as possible, it's also easier to require at that stage of life because you can, for instance, require it for attending a public school. But what about when new vaccinations become available that people are adults for by the time those vaccinations are developed? And what about older people who missed previous waves of immunization? And particularly, what about diseases where immunization isn't necessary for children but would be for adults, particularly adults that are older than 50? Here in Brussels, many are making the case that we need a more robust adult vaccination strategy in Europe, particularly for adults aged over 50, who experience a steeper decline in their immune systems from that age, as well as chronic diseases. OECD data across 26 countries of Europe show that more than one-third of people aged 16 and over live with a long-standing illness or health problem. As populations age, the prevalence of chronic conditions rises, leading to a higher risk of complications, including cardiovascular diseases from vaccine-preventable diseases, and those can reduce quality of life and a potential loss of independence for older people. Studies indicate that the proportion of adults aged over 50 in the European Union is projected to reach over 50 percent by 2025. This, democratic, this demo, demographic trend increases the need for advancing prevention measures, specifically routine adult immunization programs, as a public health priority. So today, we've assembled a panel of experts to discuss these issues, to talk about the potential of adult immunization to fight vaccine-preventable diseases and the pressure such programs would have on our healthcare systems. Let me introduce them to you here now. So here, live in the studio, we have Sibelia Quilici, Executive Director of Vaccines Europe, which is a specialized vaccines group within the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. We have Jan Sejeri, Global Medical Affairs Head for Adult Immunization at the pharmaceutical company GSK. Then, joining us remotely online, we have center-right Croatian MEP Tomislav Sokol, a member of the European Parliament's Special Committee on COVID-19. We have Pierre Van Dam, a professor of vaccinology and infectious diseases at the University of Antwerp. 
And we have Joe Schmidt, a professor of infectious diseases and vaccine development and a board member at CLCI. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for this very important discussion. Uh, Tomislav, I'd like to start with you uh, because we're talking very much about the, the lessons from COVID-19 in what is a larger issue of adult immunization. So we know that health is technically a national competence of the European Union, but the EU also does play a significant role in health. What would you say can be done at EU level to encourage adult vaccination and what necessarily needs to be done at national level? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me to this very important event, because even though that uh, COVID-19 is, let's say, in decline, it's still not over. And I think that the lessons we can learn from this are very important also for future health policies. Of course, you as you said, uh, healthcare is primarily a national competence, which means that member states are responsible for defining on how to manage and organize and finance their healthcare systems. So to determine who is entitled to what uh, type of health benefits, etc. So uh, this this was traditionally, I would say, an excuse that uh, we didn't have a real EU level health policy. That has changed with COVID-19 pandemic because the pandemic has shown us that really uh, there are problems, and these, for instance, public health emergencies, which do not stop at the borders, but uh, which member states cannot resolve by themselves. But we need common EU level action. Of course, when we speak of common EU-level action, this common action cannot be done in a kind of top-down legal, uh, uh, legally prescribing what member states have to do, because as I said, we don't have the we don't have the power to do that. But what the European Union can do is to support national policies through either funding or sharing best practices or providing administrative and other assistance which member states can then can then use of course that uh, of course uh, that is for problems which happen within national borders once there is a problem which is cross border which uh, affects different member states then you can uh, connect in a much more much more robust way <clears throat> What, what we did in the during COVID-19, I would say probably the most important instrument, uh, first we had coordination, Th that coordination was very important, uh, but that, that definitely is not enough. Uh, we had the COVID, COVID certificate, but COVID certificate is also a good example of what happens when you don't, are not able to communicate what we are offering and what's going on in the right way. Because what happened with COVID certificate, COVID certificate was created so that people can uh, can more easily go across borders so that they have more common European st standards and criteria on when somebody can go from one state to the other. But of course, member states did that, use the COVID certificate also for their own national uh, health, health purposes. For instance, uh, some member states prescribe that you cannot enter hospital without COVID certificate or something like that. But we weren't able to communicate to the people, I think, in the right way that these kind of measures have nothing to do with the EU. So when member states prescribes that you have to get a COVID certificate to enter a hospital or to go to a restaurant or something like that, that has nothing to do with the EU. That's completely a national policy. So I think that so for, so so this so I I think that uh, definitely we need to provide more help to the member states. We need to be to provide more funding. We need to provide uh, to share best practices and coordinate better. But we also have to work on rightly informing people of what the of, of what concrete situation is going on. Because I think what also the COVID committee has shown us that we have this enormous influx of uh, of fake news 
some of this hate, ha, fake news has also been spread by some colleagues from the European Parliament, I have to say, and the, and the, the hearings in the COVID, in the COVID committee, the Parliament are a good example of this. So what we need to do is to focus also more on how to on how to, how to inform people in the right way, how to how to engage with them in uh, and how to prevent uh, fake news from spreading. What is important when we speak of campaign and informing is that we need to uh, to adapt these policies to specific groups. So for in, so for in, so for instance in Croatia in my country during COVID-19 pandemic uh, we focused on uh, a on a kind of appealing to one's uh, solidarity with the other. So the, the whole idea of the campaign was uh, uh, vaccinate yourself if you want to prevent other people from contracting the disease, getting sick, dying, etc. especially the vulnerable people, the elderly people, etc. But this has shown us not to be working because I have to say, to be perfectly honest, a lot of people are just selfish. And, uh, and, try, and, 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 and focusing on their sense of solidarity with the vulnerable groups to get them vaccinated has really not proven to be very effective. So I think we need to really have tailor-made uh, campaigns for different for different social groups. We have to see what what uh, what are the things which impact the most and how we can have the the best effect among these different groups. Of course, immunization is crucial. Uh, immunization is the I would say prevention in general is the best value for money when we speak of investments into healthcare. Uh, in the in the in the world where healthcare costs are rising, where we have a lot more and more elderly population, new technologies which are technologies which are enormously expensive, immunization and prevention in general is crucial if we want to maintain also the stability of healthcare budgets. So I think that uh, that we need to definitely invest more into 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 prevention, into 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 popularizing, let's say, immunization. European Union can help. Uh, financially, by spreading best practices, by coordinating different approaches by different member states, but in the end, member states will be will have to be the ones which will determine how to organize this in practice, and especially which target groups they have, which groups they have to target the most. Uh, just one last point that I wanted to make: one thing why, why it's hard to have one unified EU policies on promoting uh, immunization is uh, our big cultural differences between different member states. And the best example for this, again, if you return to COVID-19, is if you see the rate of immunization uh, between different parts of Europe. And, and let, to simplify things, the more you, to the east you go, less uh, you have less people who are, who are vaccinated. And this shows, shows us, uh, I think, cultural differences. It shows us that in the eastern parts of Europe, you have a big uh, lack of trust in public authorities, public institutions in general, and also in science. Uh, in the government as well, because of not very good experiences from the past. Uh, also, maybe also not very clearly. Uh, also, you had a big, I would say, a bigger uh, influx of and, and better, let's say, I would say, more vulnerability in the eastern part of Europe to conspiracy theories in general. Uh, stronger influences from some other third countries outside of European Union, which 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 also were focusing on spreading uh, health news to uh, fake news to destabilize European Union. So all of these specificities of different parts of Europe need to be taken into account, and uh, and we need to leave this autonomy to the member states to define which which group should be targeted in what way. But we on the European level should provide support and financing, uh, and try to coordinate more so that uh, member states can get the most of it. Thanks, Tomislav. And as you say, that special committee that you've been sitting on is really looking at all the lessons there. It's interesting the point you make 
about the certificate being something that was developed at EU level uh, for cross-border travel, but it ended up being very important nationally because each country used these certificates uh, also for national purposes. Um, just uh, by the way, I forgot to mention to the audience, you guys can ask your questions to the panelists. Uh, whether you're here in the room, you can just uh, scan the QR code that's on your chair, and you can put in those questions to Slido. Also watching online, you'll see where you can put in your question. I'll get them here on my tablet, and I will read them out to the panelists uh, toward the end of the panel. Let's move on to Pierre. Um, so we know that, uh, and I think Thomas referenced some of the barriers that uh, we're facing here in terms of adult immunization. What would you say are the chief barriers that exist in Europe to adult immunization? Well, well good afternoon. Um, when I hear this, this question uh, in terms of barriers, I think, uh, and it's also shown in, in some uh, recent surveys, is, is really the lack of awareness. Um, and I can illustrate that, that with several examples. First of all, you have the lack of awareness that some of these adults are at risk. Uh, they are not well informed about perhaps indications for a certain vaccine for a certain age group or about a certain infectious disease. So there is really a need to well inform that very broad age group of adults because it starts at 18 and it ends, I would say, above 100. Uh, but it, it, it covers uh, a large number of people, but also a large number of occupations uh, of very specific situations like pregnant women or healthcare providers. Uh, so this is something that is really a challenge, is to, to have the whole group well aware about the different uh, aspects of immunization, infectious disease and, and prevention. Uh, and a typical example that we have seen in a number of countries related to COVID-19 immunization is when the booster immunization was really targeting, I would say, the risk population and the above 50 population in, in some countries. A lot of these 50-plus uh, population did not consider themselves as being at risk. Uh, they are healthy, they can do everything, they can travel, uh, they have quite nice uh, hobbies and occupation, and they don't consider themselves to be at an increased risk compared to other people in the population. So we need to inform these adult population, in particular, I would say the 50 plus population of very specific uh, indications for immunization. Uh, as, as was said indeed uh, in your introductions, there are new vaccines for that risk group. Sometimes uh, there is a catch-up immunization program for that age group, uh, or sometimes they forgot about an immunization or they need a booster. So these are really uh, strategies that need to be very well communicated uh, to our our target group of, of adults. Um, this brings me also to a second aspect of barriers is really the access. In which way are the health systems in the different countries uh, tailored to communicate and to target and to reach the adult population? Uh, this is not evident and we ha also have learned that from COVID-19 in very extreme situation uh, we can set up very quickly immunization centers that can try to target and reach the whole population, including the adult population, and that has worked very well in a number of countries. But equally, if we look uh, to the pre-COVID period, uh, we know that it's not evident for adults to be reached by the healthcare sector, by the healthcare system in a large number of countries, whether we think about flu immunization, Sosto immunization, pneumococcal immunization, and, and many more. Uh, and that 
again uh, is, is referring to the fact that on the one hand the health system has not been really elaborated to reach proactively the adult population so not waiting for a complaint or for any uh, symptom but really in a proactive way to try to reach uh, this population and to offer a preventive uh, measure and on the other hand we also know that our doctors are not very well placed to uh, talk to communicate about immunization whether it is in the uh, adolescent population or the adult population so from an educational point of view there is a huge challenge uh, in Europe uh, to include much more information on vaccines, not only childhood vaccines, in the medical curricula, in the uh, curricula of pharmacy students, in the curricula of midwives and nurses. And I think that's uh, equally important to improve that access issue uh, towards, towards the adults. And, and finally, uh, I was listening to the previous speaker in terms of uh, transborder activities. Um, what is also uh, increasing, I would say, the, the, the hesitancy among adults is that in one country, there is a recommendation starting at a certain age for that kind of vaccine. In another country, there is another recommendation. And that is not, I would say, improving the confidence that adults have in the recommendations or in the programs because of course they are informed through internet through their friends living in other countries what is ongoing in those countries and it would help if that would be more uniformed more standardized to really have one large recommendation in a continent it would be very supportive uh, for the different countries for the different night acts who make recommendations Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Pierre. And we saw, of course, in a globalized world where information, the information ecosystem is global, uh, that you can see when different countries have different policies toward immunization. And it can cause people to question things if the policies are set differently uh, by different health authorities. Joe, let's turn to you next. So we heard both from Pierre and Tomislav that uh, it can be hard to convince people sometimes to get immunization. Immuni immunized if they think that they are really not at risk. Uh, I think Tomislav said, unfortunately, people may have this instinct to be selfish and, and that they, they may think, look, I, I, the chances of me getting this disease are very low or the chances of me having health complications from this particular disease are low. Can you explain why is adult immunization important for disease prevention and why is this an important message to get out to people? Good afternoon, Dave, and everybody on the call. Uh, yeah, the burden of disease for most infectious diseases is U-shaped. You have high disease severity early in life and late in life. And in between, for many infectious diseases, you may still get sick and spread the organism, but the severity of the disease is less. Let's take influenza. Many children get influenza. Actually, people call children the fire of the epidemic of influenza epidemics annually. They don't usually die. Deaths are quite rare. They may occur, but it's quite rare. They get a high burden of disease and many make it to the intensive care unit even. On the other side, in the elderly, you have a high death toll due to influenza. So the U-shaped curve of infectious diseases is one of the reasons why we need vaccination through a strategy throughout life. I mentioned influenza, 
the U-shaped curve is also seen for the pneumococcus, for actually hepatitis A is very mild in the very young, but the older you get, the higher risk you have for severe disease in the elderly. We vaccinate children against varicella. So zoster is the next example for being vaccinated as of whatever you choose, depending on the country, 60, 60, 50, 60, 65, depending on where you are, to make the point we need uniform recommendations, right? Pertussis, we know today pertussis is circulating among the elderly as an unspecific cough. That's the only symptoms, long-lasting cough in an older person that may be pertussis. And we spread it then to the very young, and they may actually get severe disease and sometimes even die, one per thousand or so. So there's all good reason to have a life strategy. Now, the burden of disease is high in the very young because of a lack of yeah, maturity of the immune system. To, to use just this word, I'm not sure, I cannot go into the details here. We give for many diseases, we give two or three doses to young children, where as of age two or three years, one dose alone would be sufficient. For the elderly, we have specific vaccines with an adjuvant, or we give a higher dose, or we, or we use different routes of administration to induce immunogenicity and the rate of protection. So immunity and the immune system very early and very late in life, they cannot cope well with infectious diseases. Now, what is in this middle age group, right? 18 to 50 or 65, depending on which country you live. In these middle age groups, as Pierre mentioned uh, just a minute ago, there are lifestyle risks. I don't want to mention, uh, maybe I mentioned monkeypox here. That is a lifestyle risk. And you certainly, uh, you may be well advised, depending on your behavior, that you are vaccinated against monkeypox. If you're a traveler, you should get different types of vaccines. But what I'm really after today, we have more and more medications for chronic diseases that are seen in the middle of life that we treat with immunosuppressive agents. So the number of these patients treated with biologicals, with all types of immunosuppressive agents, this is increasing. And that is due to the fact that medicine gets better. And um, many diseases that we can treat today, uh, we could not treat uh, when I started medicine. Cystic fibrosis is one nice example. I remember when I started in pediatrics, many of my 18 to 20 year old cystic fibrosis patients died. Now with good antibiotics, with good physiotherapy and all types of different care, they make it now to become 30, 40, 50 and then they may require a lung transplant or a lung heart transplant, and then they can make it longer. And they, have, they may have a quite normal life and their, their lifespan may be quite normal. So in the end, improved medicine, um, that, increases the, that increases the risk for infectious diseases in the middle ages as well. And uh, I guess uh, to summarize then it all together, vaccines are and vaccination is the most effective way to produce health with regard to uh, with regard to the use of money you need to produce health and i think in the future in the decade of austerity to come we only can make best use of our resources if we uh, if we give a priority to vaccines and vaccination 
Thanks, Joe. And that's a good point about targeting vaccination, that it's not just about age. We'll come back to that a bit later in the discussion. Uh, Sibelia, let's turn to you next. Um, so we know that vaccination rates remain lower than they could be, particularly for adults and particularly for older people. Um, what should be the policy priorities for increasing adult vaccination rates? Um, thank you, thank you, Dave, and thank you very much to uh, everybody for setting up such an important event. Um, policies is uh, really important to, uh, to, to indeed have something in place that works. With regards to immunization, it's important to, to, to consider that you depend on the national immunization program. So you get vaccines that is recommended by your healthcare authorities. And that's really important. And that's completely different from any other drugs, for example. You don't depend from a national program to benefit from a drug when you, you're sick. But for vaccines, you do. So that means that there is these authorities that recommend vaccines and needs to embed, actually, adult vaccines into this national immunization program to ensure that the national immunization programs reflect the life course strategy as was just discussed by, uh, uh, by Professor Van Damme, Professor Schmidt, or, or even MEP Sokol. So you need to have this recognition of the importance of adult immunization that is embedded into the national immunization program. You need also to ensure that you have sufficient funding uh, with, to improve access and uptake. It's important to note that today we can, through a, a complete, I would say, national immunization programs across Europe, you can prevent up to 20 infectious diseases. 20 across the lifespan. So pediatrics, adolescent, adult, and older adults. This is huge. I mean, no other uh, areas can really claim to prevent so many infectious diseases. And this today represents just less than 0.5% of the healthcare budget, uh, which is basically less than five euros per capita that is invested by the member states. So very, very little budget uh, to prevent so many infectious diseases that would lead to uh, significant comorbidities, uh, costs uh, to the society, uh, and death uh, potentially. So ensuring the, uh, the, the funding to improve access and uptake would be, uh, would be critical for the existing vaccines, but also for the new ones that will be coming. Uh, we, we as, uh, as Vaccines Europe, we have uh, performed uh, what we call the pipeline review to understand what the companies were actually working on with regards to uh, the next generation of vaccines. And what we are seeing from the pipeline reviews that we, we will launch uh, towards the end of the year is that over 50% of the, 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 the upcoming new vaccines will target adult, uh, the adult population. And whether it is for pregnant women, whether it is for the, uh, the older uh, population to tackle the impact of aging, as was uh, actually mentioned, or whether it is also to anticipate the impact of climate change that we will have to face because the, the warming, uh, the climate warming will also uh, induce a change in, in the way the infectious diseases uh, are going to spread. So, so this is uh, really critical uh, to anticipate also for the, for the new vaccines. Uh, with regards to policies needs to educate to, to ensure that the population is educated, that the healthcare providers are trained, but this was already covered uh, by my colleagues here. Uh, another important point is to ensure that there is access and convenience in access. This is a critical point with regards to vaccine hesitancy. When you take vaccine hesitancy, 
uh, it's, uh, there are five, what we call the five C's today, but I, I stick to the three C's that's the easiest to understand is uh, confidence, confidence in the product, in the governments that are delivering those, those vaccines, is com uh, complacency, and we discussed about this need to educate to ensure that people understand the burden of adult, uh, of the uh, infections for, for the adult, and it is convenience. I mean, if it's too complicated, if you already have complacency, and if it is too complicated to access the, the, the vaccines, uh, you, you won't go. I mean, you, you're active adult. Uh, if it takes you a, a day to take an appointment, uh, to go to the pharmacies, get the vaccines, and to go back to your healthcare providers to be vaccinated, I mean, this is really, really burdensome uh, if you're an active person. Even think about an, an elderly, uh, I mean, say, well, they have nothing else to do rather than going to the healthcare system. Actually, they do. They do have leisure. They do have something else to do than spending their whole time in the healthcare system. So you need convenience in access. And for that, that means that we need to cut the silos within the healthcare system. We should not have a, a one or a specific healthcare provider that should give a vaccination. It should be all relevant healthcare providers that have a good reason to inform their patients, inform the citizens to be vaccinated, to be legitimate, to give access to vaccination. This is for the doctors, the general practitioners, the pharmacists, the nurses, but the diabetologists that uh, are taking care of their patients with diabetes or other specialists that need to really make sure that their patients have access to the right vaccines because of who they are as individuals. And I will go back to that. Is why all of that about adult vaccination? We mentioned a, a little bit about the lifestyle. Yes, it all depends who you are as an individual, whether you are a healthy person or you have chronic conditions or underlying diseases that makes you much more uh, at risk of an infection, whether it is your age. So we've seen, uh, and, and actually the national immunization calendar, when you look at those, they are really age specific. So uh, depending on your age. And then we can see, depending on your age, the little asterisks that goes with it with regards to your risk. So whether you have uh, underlying conditions or whether you're going to, uh, to be a pregnant woman or whether you, you have a specific uh, occupation, uh, if you're healthcare providers, I'm a, a scuba diver, I need to make sure that I'm up to, uh, up to date with my tetanus vaccines, for example. And this is critical for me. Um, so that's my lifestyle that I'm sharing. Um, so, uh, uh, and occupation. So, health, age, health status, age, lifestyle, and occupation for me is kind of an acronym that is really useful to understand why we, as individuals, we need to be vaccinated. And, and what needs, in terms of policies to support all of that, is electronic immunization records. This is what we have for, 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 for children more and more, although we rely a lot on paper still. Um, but we've seen in countries that have electronic immunization records system about vaccination that send recalls, send reminders uh, that the uptake is higher. And we need to have those tools expanded to adults because it, today is very much limited to, uh, to children. So we need to have those tools really expanded to adults in order to ensure uh, that people are, it's, a, it's an awareness tool, huh? basically it's a decision tool that uh, facilitates facilitate the decision-making process uh, in order to, uh, to increase uptake. Well, it's quite a startling figure that up to 20 infectious diseases can be prevented by vaccination. Jan, from, from your perspective, from GSK, what is the value of adult immunization, both for 
individuals, but also for society, for governments, for our budgets. Uh, what, why is it important? Yep. Yep. So first and foremost, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here with all of you. I mean, Dave, this is a, a, a great question. This is an amazing question that can be answered in so many ways. Uh, I'm going to start by giving a little bit of context. So if we start with childhood immunization programs, right, we know hands down this is probably one of the best medical achievement that has been done in the last century. Those are highly regarded, considered as public health priorities, and when you talk to families, friends, they all know about it uh, because of the value that they bring. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that this is not the case at all. Uh, with adult uh, immunizations, and some of our panelists here expressed a little bit why. But um, as demonstrated by this COVID-19 pandemic crisis, infectious diseases is still causing, uh, you know, devastating impact and consequences in older adults. Uh, it's affecting their ways of living. It's affecting their quality of life. It's also affecting our healthcare system, right? You mentioned in your introduction the resiliency, the functioning, and all of this is true at the local, the regional, and, and even some at some time at the global level. So it's very important to start regarding vaccinations as, uh, you know, for what it is and also for the value that it's bringing. And vaccinations will be the way to go back to this to normal or this new normal, if you will. And it's also an important policy, as, as you were indicating, to protect older adults and, and everyone, for that matter, against vaccine-preventable disease. Now, one angle to respond to your question would be to look at the, the demographic. Uh, global, we all know that global population is aging, right? We're, we're, people, the proportions of older individuals is, is increasing, uh, and this is also true in all European states. And with that come in additional layers of complexity, right? We're talking about more comorbidities, more underlying conditions, and ultimately more pressure on the healthcare system. And one thing that is important to mention, maybe some of you here are aware, but some of those, I'm gonna call them vaccine preventable disease, VPD. So some of those VPDs are actually responsible or at least partially responsible of causing those, uh, those comorbidities. I'm talking here about uh, cardio or cerebrovascular diseases, heart attack, a stroke, there's a growing body of evidence demonstrating this, just again, reemphasizing the importance for older adults to be vaccinated in order to decrease the incidence of those non-communicable uh, diseases. One other way to see also, one another angle, I was saying there's many ways to respond to that question, is about the overall impact of vaccine-preventable diseases. Just to put things into perspective, we're all aware of this COVID-19 pandemic, but the UN agency reports uh, published earlier this year show that over the last two years, COVID has cost 8.5 trillion US dollars, not billion, trillion. So this is a lot of money in two years, right? And while we're talking here about a pandemic of epic proportion, it happened in the past, it happened two years ago. I'm afraid to say that it might happen in the future. We need to be prepared, but we still also need to consider the cost of the more common vaccine-preventable uh, diseases. In U.S., for instance, you mentioned 20 uh, infectious disease. So in adults in U.S., there's uh, recommendations for 10 uh, adult vaccine-preventable diseases, and those 10 diseases are responsible for anywhere between 8 to 9 billion U.S. dollars a year. And surprisingly, or I should say not surprisingly, 80% of that cost is caused by people that are not vaccinated at the first place. So again, vaccination here from a, a overall value perspective has to be seen as a way to decrease the number of clinic visit, uh, physician visit, treatment, hospitalization, prescription, and eventually mortality. And I'd like to conclude with one very specific point. So everything I just said is 
I wouldn't say easy to understand, but it's what we know vaccines for, right? Preventing infectious disease, decreasing the, the, the cost and the pressure to the healthcare system. The thing that we might not know about vaccine is that this protection, this value goes way beyond this, all right? Vaccine is a good way or path to decrease inequalities or, or disparities, if you will, especially when it comes to the access to the healthcare system, as mentioned by, by Pierre a little bit earlier. Uh, vaccination is also a good way, or I should say an opportunity, to actually increase your socioeconomic activities, right? So by vaccinating older people, you're increasing your ratio of active versus non-active people and increasing uh, taxpayer longer term of, of, of consumption uh, and overall the gross domestic product, the GPD. And finally, I'm just going to conclude this very long answer to your question by saying that a vaccination also help in decreasing this very concerning global phenomenon that is known as antimicrobial resistance, AMR, right? We know that uh, those are, are uh, now part of the top 10 list of public health threat by the WHO. And again, just to put things into perspective, right here in Europe, uh, more than 600,000 cases of infection by, are caused by bacteria resisting to uh, one or more antibiotics. And out of these, uh, or out of those, more than 30,000 people will die from it. So when you think about it, 30,000 people, it, it's like a tiny city. It's a lot of people every year. So we need to consider that. So this is an additional value to the, uh, the benefit of vaccinations in general, but also for uh, adult uh, immunization as well. Well, Jan, you mentioned the huge cost of the COVID-19 pandemic globally, and we know that most of that cost came from, um, you know, well, from a myriad factors. But one of them is actually uh, treating people and also vaccinating people. We know that the, it's not free to vaccinate people, and we know that it's a big endeavor. We saw, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the healthcare systems were mobilized in a way that they had never really been before in a lot of countries in order to deliver this rapid, uh, completely historically unprecedented uh, vaccination campaign. Um, Thomas Love, I want to ask you, when we're looking at um, increasing widespread adult immunization, what kind of pressures does that put on healthcare systems uh, in order to have those immunization programs? And what lessons did we learn from the COVID-19 pandemic, as your committee has been looking at, uh, in terms of how those pressures can be managed and how this can be done in the most efficient, cost-effective way possible. Thank you very much. I would like to focus here on one area of healthcare, which I think has really been neglected, not in all member states, but in many, many member states, and that is primary care. So primary care, which should be part of the community where you have, the, which is the first point of contact between the providers and the, and the patients and the general population, I think is the key in terms of informing people, in terms of uh, uh, conducting widespread uh, public health, uh, health activities. And, and in this sense, I think that this is something that we really do not, we did not really focus on in the last years or even decades. Uh, and uh, this has definitely shown us the, the, I mean, the pandemic has shown us that in those member states where primary care func functioned in a good way, where we had uh, enough investments, when we had enough uh, people wor working in primary, ca primary care, and where, we had, where we had legally clearly defined public health obligations on part of primary care providers, there things function very well. Because in many members, in some member states, primary care providers are employed by the 
by the state in some in many member states they are kind of private entrepreneurs with a contract within the public system so there are different ways how this is organized or there is a combination of this uh, but uh, in many areas uh, for these uh, private providers uh, self-employed providers who have contract with member states their public health obligations are not defined in a clear way so I think we need more investments into primary care. I think we have to uh, we have to make primary care more attractive. So we have to provide incentives for people to uh, for healthcare providers for doctors to specialize in primary care because it's not as attractive as uh, most secondary or tertiary care specializations. And we have to uh, more clearly define what uh, what uh, role is uh, there is uh, for primary care uh, in terms of public public health protection. In general, when we speak of immunization, I think uh, what is what is what is very important that we also need more data. So we need common methodologies on how to how, how to how to how to get data on uh, on the actual performance and health outcomes within within the healthcare systems, and we need more European coordination on that. And I think uh, that it is very important that now we have the proposal on the regulation on European health data space, which which should make it possible that this data is gathered in the, in, the, in in an, in a unified way and exchanged between different member states, both primary and secondary use of data. I'm glad that I was appointed rapporteur by the European Parliament on this, and I think this is also very important. So to uh, to have more clear uh, to have clear data on what the concrete needs of healthcare systems are. Uh, where the bottlenecks are and uh, how to and how to, how, how to tackle all of, all of these problems but but uh, and, and and of course uh, this also needs to be transformed then into national healthcare strategies where immunization should definitely play much much more important role i mean the problem with immunization before now is that it wasn't really considered a healthcare priority because there was this kind of i think uh, broad a broad uh, perception, at least uh, among policymakers, that these kind of contagious infectious diseases are to a large extent uh, a thing of the past. But this has shown us, it, it, this has, the situation has shown us that this is not the case, that the public health emergencies can always develop, that let's say all diseases can also transform and mutate and create additional health problems. And this is something that should definitely foc uh, force policymakers on action. Problem, of course, with the with the politicians is they are always focused on short-term problems and short-term solutions, which are visible within one electoral period, within within one mandate. And this is why it is also important that we that we continue with this momentum momentum on speaking about importance of vaccination on European level to really create this kind of public pressure also on policymakers on national level to to uh, to allocate more funding and and to give more priority to vaccination as well. Um, on this question of primary care, Joe, let me put this question to you. Uh, when we're thinking about how to uh, do these types of vaccination programs the most efficiently and causing the least amount of pressure on healthcare systems, uh, we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic, most countries did vaccinations in these big vaccination centers rather than from GPs. We know that's, that's often how vaccination works, uh, especially an acute vaccination uh, campaign that you wouldn't get it from your GP. Would it be better to have uh, vaccinations delivered by GPs rather than um, from hospitals, from vaccination centers in times of an acute uh, situation. What's the best way to make sure that healthcare systems don't get um, overpressured from these types of campaigns? 
That is a good question, and the answer depends on the country. Um, healthcare systems throughout Europe are organized in a very different way. So I guess in the United Kingdom, uh, that would be some emergency rooms or GHPs who might be able to deliver this best. In Germany, I believe it would be uh, general practitioners in private practice because we have many of them. And that would also need to include pediatricians. And I don't know how to do it best in other countries. The point that I want to make there is um, from the European perspective, we, the European Union should set goals and leave the implementation to each country. I have no idea how to do it best in Spain, France, Italy and Belgium, wherever you are. Nobody knows all the details there. And by the way, funding in four vaccines comes from private health insurance companies. It comes from governments. And sometimes it comes from municipalities, like in Sweden, the, uh, the counties, the municipalities, they pay for vaccines. And if you tell them this is how you should do it, they will not like the idea. They know how to do it best themselves. So I think the goal would be to, in each healthcare system, let local people decide how to get it done, but give them the goal, for example, no more than 10% of influenza hospitalization in an intensive care unit at any time throughout the year. Come up with a specific goal and they need to achieve it. And that also implies they need to have the appropriate evaluation systems. So I would, for the European Union, I would go for goal setting and make sure that you get the right numbers if the goals are achieved. Um, yeah, Jan, did you want to come yeah, in on that? On, on the response from, from Joe and, and Tomislav, uh, to combine a little bit the two last questions, is I agree with everything that has been said. I think, however, that uh, people, uh, decision maker, payers should start seeing vaccination as, yes, it is a medical intervention. Yes, it costs money, but it's also an investment. Um, there's this very clever study from the Netherlands, I think it was published at the end of last year, showing that for every euro that you spend on a vaccination program, you would not save, you would yield four euros uh, over a population of 50 years and above over a lifetime uh, in terms of productivity, in terms of growth, in terms of, you know, again, taxpayers. So, yes, it, it is, it will probably have a rough start, but it, it's a matter of how do you how do you position it? And I, I think that if we start having more data into this and start, you know, trying to quote unquote uh, uh, announce that that those vaccination program as an investment, we would get probably a little more tractions, at least from the decision makers and payers. But really agree with what Joe and, and Tomislav has said. Yeah, it's a good point. Whatever you're spending up front will save you more money down the line. Um, Sibelia, what do you think is the most efficient way to do a vaccination campaign to avoid pressuring healthcare systems? Do you agree that it really differs based on the individual country? It does. I mean, it, it does. I, I can only agree uh, on, on what has been said with regards to the country specificities. Every healthcare system is different. You have 27 member states, 20 different healthcare systems, they are different. So they need to find their way to uh, and the right policies to ensure the right uptake. And they need to 
to know which uptake. That's also, so uh, Professor uh, Joe, actually, Joe, you, you mentioned goals, but we could also mention targets, setting up the right targets in terms of vaccination coverage rates. And this is maybe where you don't want necessarily national or country-specific targets, something much more harmonized, uh, coordinated across the region, because this is where when you have one, one target for one country or another one for another country, that starts really questioning why there are different targets, notably for, for, for viruses. I mean, we know viruses have no borders, so there is a good rationale to have a standardized policies across the region. So that's really, really important. But I think, yes, the countries are specific. The culture is specific. We mentioned the eastern part of Europe having a higher level of vaccine hesitancies than the western part. So all of this needs to be taken into consideration. You cannot talk about vaccine and vaccination in the same way in one country or another one. So this needs to be tailored made, tailored made based on the culture, based on the healthcare uh, systems that is. But I think the, the European Union has uh, has uh, uh, the, the, the power, I would say, but the, the, the mission to ensure that there is a coordinated approach. This has been mentioned several times. I mean, we've seen it with COVID-19 in terms of communication, in terms of setting up the, the vaccination. A coordinated approach is key, is key to ensure confidence, is key to ensure uptake, uh, is also key for member states to, to, to understand what works well in another member states to implement as well. So the good practice sharing between member states is critical to know that one member state decided to invest much more in specific areas or to open the, uh, the access to vaccination through pharmacies, for example. We've seen it in many countries across uh, during the pandemics. So all of these good lessons learned need, need to be spread, but, but there are country specificities that need to be respected because health is still a, a national competency. Um, Pierre, a question for you. I mentioned at the beginning that by 2025, we're looking at over half of EU citizens being over the age of 50. We know that certain countries in Europe are older than others, and globally that's also true. Um, is there a good reason to target these adult vaccination campaigns at the countries where people are, at, where the demographics are skewing older, countries like Italy, like Japan, uh, or do you think this is important no matter the demographics of the country? Well, thank you for the question. And, and in fact, it refers to what uh, Joe was saying with the U-shaped uh, curve for a number of diseases according to the, to the age. And if in proportion you have more people above the age of 50, uh, the likelihood to see uh, chronic diseases, comorbidity, uh, medication, co-medication, polymedication in that age group is, is real. And that means, of course, that we have to pay attention and those countries will have to pay attention for this uh, aging population because that might, if we do nothing, might clearly be a burden uh, on their health system, but also a, a budgetary burden in terms of, of health in the country, as we understood from the previous speakers. So definitely, I think we, we need to pay attention and these country may be model countries to show other countries how to do it. And if you talk about Italy, what has uh, surprised me so far is that Italy already has, since a few years, a lifelong immunization program. Uh, so a program for the whole life course, not ending at the age, I would say, of 16 or 18, but really with a, a clear schedule for the different age groups by 10 years, 
indicating uh, the very specific medical indication, booster indication, or catch-up indication. And I think this is really a way to move forward. Of course, that needs to be translated to the target group to make very clear, to, to explain why. And that brings me also to, to another element that we learned from the COVID-19, and some of the speakers already referred to that. If we have a system that clearly documents what is lacking in your immunization uh, card, let's say, electronic card, or what needs to be updated with uh, reminders, with recall systems, this is also a way to educate the population above the age of 50. Uh, that helps, supports them, uh, on the one hand, can easily be adapted. And we have seen that uh, this kind of, uh, of database was used for the COVID-19 vaccination in a large number of countries. So COVID-19 showed that it is feasible, that we can extend existing childhood databases on vaccination to a larger age group and use it really to uh, inform the population about their weekly coverage uh, with the primary schedule or with the booster schedule. This can also uh, help uh, the policymakers, but also help the healthcare providers and in particular the target group to do better week after week, in particular in a pandemic. Uh, on the other hand, I think we also need to use these data and use uh, data science to on the spot month after month, and the UK was a fantastic example for that, to show what is the impact of the immunization in a certain target group, in a certain age group. This also helps to take away hesitancy and to make people much more confident with the intervention. If you can show that a booster with COVID-19 vaccine can really reduce your hospitalization rate, your complication rate, in particular in the 50 plus or 65 plus population, this will convince the hesitant ones to go for their booster vaccine. And if you can do that with local data, regional data, country data, that usually helps. Uh, it, otherwise, you have to do it with literature data, and this is less convincing, we know that. So I think that's equally important, is to, to make use of all this information, in particular in those age groups. Um, Joe, Pierre was just talking about target groups there. Uh, let me ask you, in terms of, we, we've talked so far about um, the, the factors that would put someone in a target group that are beyond just their age. How narrowly targeted should adults' immunization programs be? Is there a risk that if they're too narrowly targeted, if they, if they require too much proof of being in that target group, that you can disincentivize people to get vaccinated? One of the things we've learned from the past, and the beginning was hepatitis B, is that narrow targeted programs tend to fail. You're best if you give general recommendations. The hepatitis B recommendation for narrow groups had no impact on global health or on, on, on public health in, in single countries. Only when we started vaccinating young children due to the epidemiology of the hepatitis B virus, this really made the difference. And that was the success against liver cancer. It was the, guess, the, the, the success against uh, uh, chronic hepatitis and liver cirrhosis. So really, narrow targeting is set for failure. The, um, I, I think there are exceptions, right? It's not a general rule like monkeypox would not make much sense in a situation with not enough vaccine out there, if you spread it all over the place and you don't even have enough for those who are at risk. 
So I think the general rule would be not narrow but wide general use of, of vaccines, but there are exceptions and you have to make individual decisions. Um, uh, Tomislav, you wanted to come in on this as well, I think? Yeah, I want I wanted to, to refer to two points that were made. The thing first about the goal setting. Yes, definitely. When I was referring to what we neglected, etc. Of course, that these this priority setting within member states in terms of organization is their competence. So whether uh, so and it dep depends on national situation. Of course, we we from the European level cannot legally uh, define. Uh, and uh, and and legally and legally oblige member states to do certain certain things. When we speak, however, about uh, in terms of organization of healthcare and things like that. On the other hand, when we speak about uh, goal setting, we have some instruments for which we can use. I think one of the important instruments is European Semester. So European Semester was uh, was set was uh, was set to control. And to and to try to coordinate national economic policies at the beginning it was really focused on austerity but now we have, we have already a lot of healthcare issues and health related goals which are not necessarily only uh, economic in a narrower sense which are which are there and I think this European semester and country specific recommendations can be used to actually set certain targets on your on European level. So this, so, uh, so this is something that definitely can be done, but of course, in terms of organization, in terms of which part of healthcare will, will be funded and uh, and focused on uh, within member states, that is that is a competence of the member states. So that is completely clear. And the second point about investment, I think it is very important that healthcare should be considered not as a cost but as an investment because. We have a lot of data, a lot of studies which show us the benefit and long-term economic benefits of having healthier population, of having a population which is which, which is more uh, active in terms of work, etc. So I think that that uh, this kind of changing of paradigm when we when we speak about healthcare is very important. Of course, the problem with these benefits is that they are used in many cases more long-term than shorter than short-term, and this is something that definitely uh, is a problem for at least some some politicians. But I, yes, I agree. I think that we have we have we have to promote this kind of approach to healthcare. That this is really an investment. That there is a lot of also economic benefits of having healthier population, and not just the cost. Um, let's go to some questions that have come in from the audience. And again, you guys can ask your questions via Slido. I'll read them out. Uh, first question is for Sibelia. Uh, question is, it's an interesting one. It's from Charlotte Thibault from the EPSA. How do you think student health associations can improve and better prevention regarding adult immunization? So obviously not in that 50 plus category, but still adults. Uh, how could student associations help? Uh, so that's a really, really good question. Uh, well, from EPSA, coming from the uh, Student Association for Future Pharmacists and Community Pharmacists, I think the um, first to assess whether you receive the right training and be the defender of, of ensuring that you receive the training that will provide you all the knowledge and the communication skills to communicate about vaccine and vaccination. I think this is really, uh, really, really important. 
um, uh, because you all will be the new, gen the next generation of vaccinators potentially. Uh, so, so that's really important. And as the uh, student associations, there are also those organizations that, that have uh, a hands on shaping the, the policies for in, in the future. So, uh, so being, keeping being engaged uh, on this topic is, is really critical and ensuring that you, you, you lead by example as uh, the, the next generation of healthcare professionals. I think it's clearly what is needed here. And Jan, you wanted to come in? Yeah. This is a great response, and I would like to add to this in the fact that, uh, you know, this is also for the more traditional vaccinators. We know that in uh, 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 medical training curricula, there's only just so much of hours and days of, of training on immunizations, which is very, very low training. Um, so there's promotion to be done there. But also the fact that now vaccination is not just a matter of general practitioners, of nurses. It's also a matter of pharmacists. It's also a matter of other specialties. So start right there at student associations to think about innovation and how could you help better promote or even better become a vaccinator in, in that regard. So I think there's many ramifications to, to this uh, possibility. And Pierre, you wanted to come in on this as well. Yeah, I think, I think both speakers already covered it, it quite well, but what we understood from the EPSA and also from the EMSA, so also the Medical Student Association, in Europe is that uh, in, in a quite recent survey, uh, a lot of them don't feel very comfortable uh, answering questions on vaccines and then they are eager to learn more. So indeed the, the educational package uh, towards medical students, midwife, pharmacy, nurse students should be uh, urgently revisited and, and really be offered in their training so that they feel comfortable answering these questions because we should not forget, and I think Sibylia referred to that, the pharmacists will play an increasing role in the immunization programs, in particular targeting, I would say, individual adults. Uh, and, and we need to train them very well, but also in terms of communication, uh, to train them very well so that they, they can play their role. And they belong really to the primary uh, healthcare uh, as a GP, as perhaps other uh, healthcare providers uh, at the level of cities, at the level of municipalities they will play an increasing role and they should really also uh, collaborate with the local gps so that they can be uh, responsible for a certain target of an immunization in a certain target group uh, in their municipality that would be wonderful okay the next audience questions coming from georgina turner joe i'm going to put this question to you i think this is something uh, i hear often from the general public question is, is there an alternative to vaccination? Would alternative medication possibly be more effective? The, the, the short answer is simply no. What would be an alternative for prevention by immunization? I would not see any difference there. Look, breastfeeding is advertised, rightfully so, to reduce infections and it is good for the child but it won't reduce RSV, it won't reduce the incidence of influenza. There is no measurable effect on a population level. So the short answer is there is no proven effective alternative to immunization that I know of. And if I may just respond to Pierre, um, immunization is not part of the curriculum in most German universities. I know only one that has a curriculum. And now, 
I have, an, I have produced an online course in English in vaccinology and we sent it to universities and they come back to us saying our professors do this. The problem is they don't. And if you tell people or if you ask them, students don't know about infectious diseases and about vaccination. So just as a side note, Pierre, thanks for saying this. There is a huge lack and it's not only the students we need to go to, but to, we need to address it to faculties. They they don't do well when it comes to vaccines and vaccination. And sorry for um, for not following the question, Dave. That's fine. Um, the next question is for Thomas Love. A question is from Enrico Lacovici. The EU response to the pandemic so far barely mentions immunocompromised patients, 14 million of whom are in the EU, although they are the most at risk of infection, severe impact, and social isolation. Will the Parliament's COVID committee push the Commission to address the unmet needs of immunocompromised patients? Uh, we will definitely try. Of course, of course, you know how it works in the parliament. So you have political groups uh, which have to find the find the compromise on that. Some political groups, if I may say, are more focused on this kind of PR approach to, to things, uh, accusing commission and uh, getting some score some political points on the question of the contracts with pharmaceutical companies and also and also some of them are also spreading uh, conspiracy theories i have to say but i'm confident that the, the, the more serious part of the parliament and the committee will really try to to make a, a serious report i'm confident that the rapporteur Ms. dolores montserrat from my political group from the epp is also taking this into consideration our EPP is uh, one of uh, priority, and it was priority when we were setting the agenda of the committee was to focus on vulnerable groups of vulnerable people. We wanted to have actually more hearings on different uh, groups of vulnerable people. Unfortunately, the majority in the in the committee only uh, wanted to have one uh, one uh, hearing on the vulnerable people, which I think was not a really good decision. But we are, the situation is as it is now, but definitely EPP's priority is to focus on vulnerable groups, including even the compromised patients. And we will do our utmost to, uh, that this also finds its way in the report. Thanks. Okay, so the next question I'm going to put to Jan. The question is from Isatu Sar. Can the issue of lower vaccine efficacy in older adults in whom vaccine responses are lower as a consequence of immunosenescence uh, be tackled by improved vaccine technology as demonstrated by recent advances with adjuvant, adjuvanted vaccines? A lot of big words in that question. Um, yeah, so can, <laughs> can those things be tackled? Um, yes, yes. I mean, first and foremost, I have to start with the, the fact that, that we just mentioned immunosenescence, right? It's true that starting um, a little bit before 50 years of age, actually, the immune system starts to decline in efficacy, but to a point where you're going to see a difference probably a little bit past 50 in terms of... Uh, not getting the infections, but the complication associated with the infections. So it's true that in that particular regard, some of the vaccines that uh, we sometime plan to use with older adults are not as effective as you would see in, in the pediatric populations, for instance. And yes, we, we are uh, developing vaccines that use different set of technologies uh, since the questions was referring to the adjuvant system. Uh, so adjuvant system is a, is a set of molecules that are aiming at improving the immune response to a particular antigens 
uh, we, we use that in a number of vaccines uh, across different manufacturers. Um, and and uh, it, it works in a sense that it, it, it amplified a response that you would normally not see in the immune uh, response of an adult suffering from immunosenescence. So it, it's one way to look at this. Uh, and there's also other technologies that are currently assessing in order to improve that, that immune response in that particular populations of elderlies. Um, Pierre, let me put this question to you as well. Um, would you agree with that, that that's a good way to deal with the issue of uh, lower response for older populations? Yes, and, and I think we don't have to, to hide the, the, the existence of immunosenescence. We have to explain it uh, and, and explain in a way that it is even more important uh, for this uh, age group, like for immunocompromised, to be very well protected in a proactive way. Uh, and this is not a shame for the vaccine. It's just a way to better prepare a whole generation for what we can expect in the near future with the tools that we have today. At the same time, we know this is a fantastic opportunity for the academia and the industry to work together to improve, to innovate. But this is something that will come in the near future. And we know that we have seen that with the, the whole research on adjuvants in vaccines on new platforms in vaccines. It's every time to give an answer at the level of safety and at the level of immunogenicity. So it is in the advantage of uh, the older adults, definitely. But I think we, we need to well explain uh, with all the arguments we have why we use the current vaccines for this target group. Okay, the next question is for Tomislav. The question is from Gianni Derico. How do, how do you connect the R&D major EU national players in infectious diseases, AMR and disease prevention with the main EU programs? So if you have all these areas of national expertise, how do you make sure that expertise is being shared across the EU? So, uh, uh, so when we speak of R&D, of course, the most important uh, program that we have on new level is Horizon. And in the horizon, we have this whole framework and this whole ecosystem of uh, of uh, of connecting of, of connecting different research institutions. So this is definitely one one important one important area. Also, I think one area which is not necessarily only linked with R and D, but more with health treatment, but which I think is also important, is the concept of European reference networks on health. This is obviously for cross-border healthcare, but the whole idea of this is to actually have these uh, health centers, which are centers of excellence, also connecting, connecting with, with with each other. And of course, a lot of a lot of these hospitals, a lot of these health centers, is also connected with with research as well. So, so in, in many member in many member states, hospitals are university hospitals. So definitely, so definitely, they are, they are connected, and and research and the healthcare practice cannot be discerned one one from the other. Of course, we also have EU for Health program. EU for Health program is the new EU funding instrument for healthcare. It is 12 times bigger than in the previous seven-year budgetary period of the EU. It's now 5.3 billion euros. But of course, I think it needs to it needs to be much bigger. And Parliament wanted it to be much bigger, but then the member states of the Council unfortunately prevented this, so we had to make a compromise. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, but the, the fact is that most of this funding will go to uh, Europe's beaten cancer plan and uh, and. Uh, 
the and the whole issue of the new institutions, HERA, etc., for tech, for tech, for tech, tech and future health crisis. So I think that uh, so so not a lot of will go for other health policy actions, but I think that this is a good basis. Uh, so that the future EU health uh, health funding instruments are also focused uh, are get even bigger, but also focus on uh, on different areas as well. Of course, uh, of course, when we when we speak of uh, when when we speak of when we speak of R and D, national funding is also very important. Uh, so you cannot uh, supplant and substitute national funding for research and development. EU uh, has limited budget, so it really focuses on. Uh, big collaborative projects on EU on EU level, but of course uh, through other EU instruments we can also do what we can to also support national investments into R and D, also through cohesion policy, which is one important area, but and some other and some other areas as well. Um, Sibelia, I put this question to you as well. At Vaccines Europe, do you see a problem with like siloed R and D and national in different countries that isn't being shared at EU level? Um. I, I won't say so. Um, I won't say so. I would see much more. So there is Horizon. There is also IHI, the Innovative uh, Health Initiative, which is the evolution of, of IMI, which is also a, a very big, uh, I mean, uh, this is the biggest uh, uh, program in the world with regards to, uh, to supporting research and development uh, in, in pharmaceutical, in the area of health. So I think uh, here there, there is a good coordination as well with, uh, with what's going on at national level and what is uh, coordinated through, uh, through IHI. So I think that's, uh, that works well. Um, I think what, what we need to look at is, is um, how the R&D is actually evolving in Europe compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and, and where the, uh, the research is actually happening in, in also in the field of vaccines and immunization um, uh, compared to, to the US and China. And we see a, a strong uh, growth happening in the US and China, for instance, and notably in the field of vaccination. Also with regards to uh, what uh, the pandemic created in terms of really reverberating and uh, uh, the, the willingness to work in that space and whether Europe will remain competitive and attractive there is, is what we need to look at today. And Jan, I'll put the question to you as well. Obviously, you guys are very involved in R&D. How do we translate national expertise to European expertise? Uh, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, for me, it's, I mean, most of this has been covered already, but for me, it's a matter of networking, right? So, so it's, it's one thing to export. Sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not possible. But I, I think, and it was, I believe Tomislav mentioning that early on in this meeting is, is that the need to share best practices, share ways of working. So for me, it's, and especially when it comes to adult immunizations, we need to work together into this. We need to be, we need to be a team. We need to be more keen into doing some collaborations. Pierre also just mentioned the collaborations between the industry and some academics around the adjuvant systems. So for me, going from national to European makes, a, makes much sense. Uh, to have an overview of what's possible in the different um, uh, countries and the different states, and, and also to decrease these inequalities as well uh, to, to uh, innovations in science that I was referring a little bit earlier on. So yeah, absolutely uh, agree with this. Well, that's all the time we have left for today's discussion. I want to thank our panelists, both here in the room and joining us online for some really interesting interventions. I mean, I think 
we, we're all in agreement here that adult immunization is important uh, and doing it in the most efficient way is also important and that may be at EU level, but also as we heard, national healthcare systems differ greatly within the EU and we certainly learned that during the COVID-19 pandemic. Indeed, the pandemic and its massive vaccination program, as I said, historically unprecedented, offers us a lot of lessons about what works and what doesn't work. And certainly, uh, we know that the special committee in the European Parliament is looking at those lessons, but also other policymakers, businesses, uh, academics are all looking at this subject. Uh, and I know a lot of you watching at home are looking at this subject as well, and will continue to do so for, to the benefit uh, to all of us. So I want to thank all of you for spending your afternoon with us. And also here in the room, if you're here in the room, I invite you out to our networking reception outside. And if you're at home, I wish you a very excellent rest of the afternoon, wherever you are. And we'll see you right here for the next Your Active Debate. Thank you.